0: So, right as we begin, I'd like you to notice something that I find quite significant about this very brief passage that we read. If you're wondering, we're taking it, you know, we finished our psalm series, we're about to start Thessalonians, but, but I want to just take a break for a week. Our, our mission as a church is to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. And I thought it'd be good for us just a week to kind of think again about what that means. And Philippians 1 is one place that tells us that. And, and the thing that I find especially striking in this passage is that it tells us that we are meant as a church to be a sign to people that the gospel is real. Notice how it says in verse 28, it says, This is a sign of destruction to them, but of your salvation. The the way you live, if you live as I'm going to instruct you to live, is a sign that the gospel is real. You know, one of the challenges I think we experience um, as Christians as we have come to experience the glory of Jesus' love for us is we long to have others come to experience that as well. And, and it's hard for us sometimes because it seems like people that we know and we love, maybe they're friends or family or neighbors, just seem utterly disinterested, that, that there is just no interest in listening as we desire to speak to them of the love of Jesus, And Paul says here, your friends, your neighbors, your family, they need a sign. They need a sign in the church that their future is a dead end, but that the future in Christ is real, that salvation is real. And you, as a congregation, can be a sign of the reality of the gospel. That's that's the central claim, I think, of this passage that is striking. And so then the question is, if that is our calling, to be a sign that the gospel is real, how do we do that? And notice, uh, I love Paul doesn't complicate things. If this were um, modern day, it almost would sound like clickbait. You know, be a sign, try just this one thing. Well, that's pretty much what he says. Notice at the very beginning of the passage, just one thing here's here's if you are wanting to fulfill this calling for you to be a sign of the reality of the gospel here is the one thing that you need to focus on and what is it as citizens of heaven live your life worthy of the gospel of christ the verb here is is an important one the one that is translated as citizens live your life worthy, it's, um, I don't normally quote the Greek, but I actually think the Greek is helpful to hear. The word is polituo, and that polit is significant. It's the word that we get the word politics from. It, It means to live out your citizenship, or to live out your political identity. Paul says, here's the one thing that you need to do to be assigned to the world around you of the reality of the gospel, and then he goes to politics, to how we live publicly. Now, I'll say that this word, this idea of citizenship, of of living politically, would have gotten the Philippian church's attention immediately because the city of Philippi was incredibly political. Political. Not not in the way that we are today, of right versus left. In that day, there were kind of two parties. Those who were for the emperor, those who were against. So, many in Jerusalem were wanting independence from the emperor. But, Philippi was the opposite. Philippi was this Roman colony and they took great pride in that status of being roman of roman citizenship many retired military veterans would then retire in the city of philippi it was a place where if you were honorable you were pro emperor you would join in the title that everyone gave what people would call the emperor in that day was two things lord and savior they would speak of the emperor being Lord and Savior, and they would try to acknowledge it, and you, if you were in that city, would be expected in so many ways to show your political allegiance. So sacrifices would be offered, like, anytime people get together, whether we're talking about a parade, whether we're talking, I don't know, about an ice cream social or a baby shower, there would be a sacrifice to the emperor as people praise and show their allegiance to their Lord and Savior, the emperor that was the political environment everything in philippi was political which feels a little familiar to us doesn't it i don't know if if you had i wouldn't be surprised if there's some people the moment i even used the word political inwardly you groaned it's like there is so much political fatigue right now because like everything somehow has become political. I mean, we know this, right? I mean, whether you put a certain frame on your Facebook picture, or, or what like, lawn sign you put in front of your house, or, or whether you get vaccinated or wear a mask, everything somehow is politically charged. And it seems like we're constantly being asked in everything to show our political colors. And it is exhausting. Again and again we're being asked where is your political allegiance. Everything is made political. And that that was how the Philippian church, that Philippian city was. And Paul is not at all apologetic. He talks immediately about politics. You need to live out your citizenship. How are we supposed to live out our citizenship? Live your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, just as a reminder, Christ isn't Jesus's last name. Christ is a political title. It means literally the anointed one, which is God's appointed king. And if you think about it, the gospel itself is a political message. It is a declaration that the kingdom has come and that Jesus is God's appointed king. So Paul says, here is the one thing, just the one thing, if you want to be a sign of the gospel, live out your political identity as those whose citizenship belongs to Jesus. As those whose citizenship is belonging to the fact that you belong to the kingdom of heaven, do not let yourself be held captive by the different political forces of this world because your political allegiance is to someone else. So Paul is saying, you are neither pro-emperor nor the anti-emperor party. On one hand, you will not say that the emperor is your lord and savior and sacrifice to him because your allegiance is to someone greater. And yet at the same time, you will also try to support the emperor and submit to him whenever you can because that's what your savior, Jesus, calls you to do. In our day, Paul would say, your sign is neither the donkey nor the elephant, it's the lion and the lamb. You, you belong neither to the right nor to the left because you are on a different plane called upward to the kingdom of heaven. That is your political identity, which will mean, just like it would have in Philippi, you are going to confuse everyone. Because your king declares to you that everyone is made in the image of God, then you will uphold the right of the unborn, and you will be deeply concerned about racism and sexism. Because your king says that the way that we relate to each other is sacred, then you will be passionately concerned when sex becomes some form of transaction rather than a holy relationship between a husband and wife, and you will also be concerned to fight for justice. And in doing so, you will confuse both sides because your allegiance is to someone else altogether. Our political identity, our citizenship is in heaven with Jesus as our king. That's the one thing, Paul says. Now, I've used some policy kind of ideas or some, you know, what it looks like to illustrate, but what Paul actually is interested in when he's talking about how we live out our political identity is a posture and a priority. And that's when the paragraph, in this paragraph, what really focuses attention of how we are to be assigned. The posture, he says, as those who live as citizens of a greater kingdom, is one not characterized by fear, but a steady confidence in who we are. So notice how in verse 28 it says not being frightened in any way by your opponents. We are in a political era where fear is just everywhere. We, we see it in all of the headlines to get us to click. It's, it's filled with exciting fear. We see it in the ads. We see it in the promises. Again and again, people have realized that one of the most powerful ways for us to do anything or to click on anything or to believe anything is to motivate us with fear. And yet, Paul says, that's not the way of our kingdom We won't respond to our opponents in any way by fear. And the Philippian church had a lot of opposition. I mean, notice what Paul goes on to say to even explain the statement. He says, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. When you're in a city that demands ultimate allegiance to the emperor and calls you to show it repeatedly and repeatedly, you say, no, I have a higher allegiance. That is going to stick out. It was costly. It would cost people income. It cost people their jobs. It sometimes caused people imprisonment, or even in Philippi, sometimes their deaths. Now, we're not in Philippi, but... We feel some of that same pressure, don't we? That, that sense that there's constant demands for us to show where our political allegiance lies. Some of you experience it every June when it is Gay Pride Month and your company, your business expects some form of support. Maybe it's signing something. Maybe it's participating in something. And no matter how gently or respectfully you decline because you have a higher allegiance, it will be costly. I I know of pastors who have sought simply to preach what Jesus says about justice and have lost their jobs for it because it was seen as not being politically to the right enough for some people because, again, there is a claim on allegiance and it was costly to place their allegiance to someone greater. The point is not even to speak of exactly where that is, but to speak of how we are going to be tempted in a time, just like Philippi was, where there is so much politics and so much demand on politics to respond if we feel like we are being opposed in fear. You know, psychologists speak of how fear can be manifest in a number of different ways. Uh, It used to be just fight or flight. Now people speak about it. It can be fight or flight or freeze or fawn. And if you think about it, if we think about how churches sometimes respond to the sense of opposition that surrounds us, we can see us taking all four stances in different ways. Let me just focus on three. Freeze maybe is a little bit more self-explanatory, but some churches we'll fight. If we're being attacked, if we're being pressured, then we need to push back. We need to take control. We need to assert power. There is a sense sometimes that that even if it is a messy business to be able to get in a position of power, well, war is messy, and we are in a culture war. We need to fight fire with fire. If we are being attacked, we attack back. That's the fight response, and it is an expression of fear. Other churches, kind of in the very other way, will do the fawn, and fawn means the idea of kind of trying to to placate or please where your opponent is, And, and some churches will be like that. If we can just be normal, if we aren't weird at all, if when people come here it feels just like normal life, maybe it might even mean that we just don't talk about some of the more controversial things, then, then maybe people will like us. If we maybe choose to omit some of the more offensive parts of Scripture, say it's old-fashioned, it's not part of today, maybe we won't offend anyone anymore. It is a desire to placate. And when we are not honest about what Scripture teaches out of a desire to please others, that's, a, that's an action of fear. Others choose the flee response. In the sense that if this world is going to try to influence us in ways that are not faithful to Jesus, then we will just pull back. We will stay within our own circle. We'll find our own Christian plumbers and and Christian whatever so that we're only connected to each other. and, And all that we'll try to fight for politically larger is just to make sure we're taken care of. And if the world ends up kind of falling apart that's on them that desire to escape that tendency to flee that's a response of fear and Paul says if you are living out faithfully as as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus you are not going to respond to your opponents in any way by fear Instead, he says, the response of those who are faithful to King Jesus is what I would call a steady confidence in who we are. So verse 27, when he starts expanding upon what it looks like to be these citizens, he says, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. You might even recognize, if you're really paying closely attention to what we said at the very beginning of the service, we had a call to worship from later on in Philippians. And, and there, as well, it speaks of standing firm, and it helps us to understand what Paul has in mind here. In that passage, right before, Paul was talking about how there are some people that he knows who profess Jesus, who sing praises to Jesus, but they have a lost a sense of what their identity is. Paul says, their God actually is their stomach. Their mind actually is set on earthly things. While, while they say Jesus is their king, their, their, their days are consumed by getting a good house and having a good job and living respectably and finding comfort. And Paul says what they're doing is forgetting who they are. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven We are awaiting our King, Jesus, who will return and transform us. Therefore, he says, stand firm in the Lord. Remember who you are. Remember where your identity is. Remember what your hope is, because when we remember that, when we have that confidence, it allows us to be fearless. You know, some of us, are probably more attuned to social situations than others. Have you ever noticed, like when you're in a group of people, just how it's clear that some people are more awkward or unsure of themselves, and some people in that same social situation just seem really comfortable? I find for myself, if I'm in a group of people where I basically know I'm generally pretty comfortable, but I will tell you, if I'm ever in a group of people who um, I don't know in a situation that is new to me, there's a part of me that suddenly is like back in third grade and I'm worrying about who I get to sit with for lunch. I, I just feel a kind of awkwardness. And, and we probably can see that sometimes. Some people, when we are in a group sitting setting, we can tell they're awkward because they're just withdrawn and it seems like they don't know what to say. Other times, when people are awkward, we can see a similar awkwardness manifests itself in a very different way where they're just constantly speaking and trying to get people's attention and trying to be seen and noticed but but sometimes if someone is secure in who they are there's more of a steadiness there's no longer a constraint of worry or fear that's keeping someone within but but a security and a confidence that allows them to look outward and potentially be more concerned and attentive to others. When Paul says, stand firm, he is calling us to that steadiness. A a lack of insecurity. Yes, someone might take our stuff. Someone might take our jobs. and, And that's not something that we're excited about. And yet we know that we have an inheritance that cannot be taken and so we are secure. We don't need to attack back. Yes, we might look foolish in the eyes of others, but we don't need to adjust ourselves because we know we are prized in the eyes of Jesus. And that's what matters. And that sense, of our identity as those whose citizenship is in heaven, whose king is the Lord Jesus Himself, can give us a security and steadiness that enables us to resist the tendencies of fear. In fact, it doesn't just come from within. Notice what Paul says. He says, Stand firm in one spirit. And literally, it's translated, it could be translated, in the one spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit. And I think that's the idea here. That that confidence and that sense of of security comes not not just from us knowing things, but as we open ourselves to God and as he does his work on us, it gives us this deepening confidence that allows us to be steady. In fact, if we think about the idea that it's the Spirit who empowers this, it gives us even more full of a picture of what this, this posture looks like. Because Paul tells us that when the Spirit is at work, That involves things like joy, peace, and self-control. There is a steadiness in that. It also involves outward orientation in love, even towards those who are our enemies. In patience, even as people hurt us. In gentleness and kindness, even as people are wrong. Do you get a sense of the picture of this standing firm in one's spirit, this steady security that that is open to us as citizens of Christ's kingdom? You know, right now it seems to me that, that Christians, that churches have this This reputation sometimes of being people who are way more interested in yelling over other people than in listening, who are not good at attending and noticing other people, who who are just trying to make sure that they are heard and they're shutting their ears to everyone else. And what they are showing in those moments when that is true is an insecurity. But we don't need to be that way. We know who we are in Christ. I mean, what would it mean, what would it look like if we as a church took on the reputation for being the church that listens. Not listening in a way where we are somehow changed or compromised, but listening because we know who we are and because we're able to be attentive to others. This is the demeanor of those, the posture of those who stand firm, who are citizens of heaven. So there is this posture but we also must recognize that as citizens of heaven there is a priority and that is what paul says right after when he says standing firm in one spirit and then in one accord contending together for the faith of the gospel in one accord in one mind and one impulse contending together For the faith of the gospel. If you want to know what our political platform is. It's this. That we are committed as God's people. Together to seeing other people experience. The glory of Jesus as their king. In every aspect of their lives. That is our calling. That is what our priority is about. Which shows why it is such a mistake. When we are tempted to withdraw. Into our own circles. Out of fear. Because if we are truly going to be committed to seeing others know Jesus, others learn life under his kingship is where freedom and joy is found that inevitably moves us towards people, not away from them that inevitably calls us towards hospitality, not resistance, because what we are doing is seeking to welcome people in to the kingdom, welcome people into the good news of the gospel. That is our priority. That is what defines the citizens of Christ's kingdom. And of course it does, because that is what Jesus was all about. Jesus moving towards the people who hated him in love moving, even costing himself everything to welcome people into his kingdom. And as those who belong to him as our king, how can we not follow? That is our priority. I just want to make two quick observations about what that looks like. Notice, first of all, this emphasis on the togetherness of this. Contending together. For the faith of the gospel contending together that the word actually is an athletic metaphor so i know and i, I try to stay away from sports metaphors because i realize not everyone's into sports but since this is actually literally the word f athlete I'll, I'll go with one if, if you know football at all you'll know that a team of 11, 11 players are all needing to work in synchronization and the only way a team will work well is if every single person does their part so the The offensive linemen need to block to keep people from tackling the quarterback. The wide receivers each need to run their own pattern to move the different corners and safeties in their own place. The the running back needs to take the fake handoff to bring the linebackers forward. And then the quarterback, in the very right time, needs to throw the ball to just the right person. It only works if everyone does their job. And Paul is saying, that's how it works with us. It works only as we... Contend together for the faith of the gospel. This is not an individual sport. This is something where we all, all hands on deck, are needed because this is hard. You know, one of the main reasons that we are doing this spiritual conversations training is because we realize that for many of us, the only way that we can start listening to people well and asking them good questions about Jesus is if we do this together, if we pray for each other if we cheer each other on to help us to do what we know we are called to do. You know, another thing about this is when Paul is envisioning this, contending together for the faith of the gospel, what it tells us is that each of us play a different part, a different role, and all of us are needed. Some of you are fantastic at welcoming people into your homes. Some of you are really good at being connected to people in this community. Some of us are are perhaps better at knowing how to explain the gospel when we're in the right situation. Some are introverted, some are extroverted. Every single person in our congregation is given a gift and a responsibility, and when we are all working together towards this priority in unity, that is what we are called to be. A second observation just to make right here. Notice when Paul is speaking about how citizens of heaven live out their political identity, how well-rounded he's calling churches to be. Sometimes churches kind of seem to specialize in one thing. Some churches might specialize in just... Growing in maturity. Other churches are all about connecting in unity to each other and relationships. And still others might be all focused on, on mission and reaching out. And, and notice that Paul says we don't have the freedom of just doing one because all three are equally needed. And if we're lacking any one of those three, all will be lacking. So if we are trying to grow in maturity as Christians and yet don't grow in unity, or, or we don't seek to follow Jesus and sharing the, the gospel to the world around us, what kind of maturity actually is that? Or if all of us are, are seeking just to be connected to each other, but our connection has nothing to do with our commitment to Jesus, and there is no sense of shared purpose, what kind of unity is that? And likewise, if we're all about trying to share the gospel, but there is no maturity, and if we don't do this together, then we will fail. All three are needed in equal measure. We need to be well-rounded. And I just want to say, um, I wonder if sometimes it feels like what we are emphasizing as a church can feel a little bit moving around like a couple years ago we we really been focusing more on discipleship and then last year you probably heard us saying again and again we're seeking to grow a culture of outreach and and this time we're really wanting to focus on how do we grow back together again and unify but what I hope you realize is it's not just all over the place make up your mind is that all three of these are needed. And we have to work on each one to grow in unity, to grow in maturity, to grow in mission, because that's what it looks like to be citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. This is the posture and the priority of those whose identity is in Christ, whose political identity is in the kingdom of heaven. I just want to pause, or conclude even, and and ask you just to try to imagine this. Uh, Imagine a community that is engaged, a church that is engaged in the life of its community and yet is not partisan, not being pulled either to the right or to the left. Uh, Imagine a church that at times experiences opposition yet doesn't respond in fear, but responds to people around with, with love and with patience. Uh, Imagine a church that is good at listening, that is curious, that is interested in learning about its community and understanding where people are coming from, and yet at the same time is able to maintain a faithful, gentle, joyful proclamation of Jesus. If you can even imagine a little bit, can't you see how that kind of confidence and faithfulness can act as a sign that something is going on. Will it be offensive? Absolutely, because every time anyone says that your highest allegiance is to something other than the gods of this world, it will be offensive. But it also is provocative. And it invites people to think and wonder if maybe there's something to that gospel after all. And I can't help but wonder if one of the reasons that it is so hard to gain a hearing right now as we want to share about Jesus is precisely because people aren't seeing this right now. This is our calling. Paul says, just one thing. Just just one thing. Live your political identity out. Live your citizenship of heaven out in the world, this will be a sign to them. I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Let's spend a couple minutes in just reflecting on what God is saying and where it is appropriate. If we see areas that we need to change our life, to spend time in confession, or if they're just things that we want to grow in, we can ask God in prayer, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.